We're starting on the problem of how the bacterium, E. coli, reproduces, how it grows, how we get two E. coli cells from one. But first we need to know what are the chemicals that need to be made if we are to create one net E. coli cell. Let's start with the most abundant and most important molecule in the cell. Not an organic molecule, but water, H2O. We'll use our discussion of the water molecule as a springboard for introducing different types of chemical bonds that are important in biology. A more accurate representation than H2O would be HOH, showing that each hydrogen atom is bonded to the oxygen atom. Or H-O-H, where the dashes indicate covalent bonds, the sharing of electrons or showing the actual angle formed by the two bonds to H, H-O-H, written at an angle with the angle even specified 105 degrees, or showing the sharing of electrons more explicitly, for instance, with X's for the electrons donated by the hydrogen atoms and O's for the electrons donated by the oxygen atom. Covalent bonds are very strong bonds. We can compare the strength of the various chemical bonds by noting the amount of energy it would take to break the bond. For most covalent bonds, this is about 100 kilocalories per mole, or kcal per mole, where calories are a unit of en energy. One calorie, with a small c, is the energy needed to raise one gram of water one degree centigrade. Calorie, with a capital C, as in dieting, is a kilocalorie, with a small c, a thousand small calories. A yet more accurate portrayal would be HOH, given at an angle, but with delta pluses over the hydrogen atoms and delta minus associated with the oxygen atom. The deltas indicate a partial electrical charge on that part of the molecule. This configuration has important consequences because although the electrons are indeed shared between the hydrogens and the oxygen, they are not shared equally. The oxygen nucleus is more electronegative than the hydrogen nucleus. That is, it attracts the shared electrons more strongly than the hydrogen nuclei. As a result, the oxygen is slightly negatively charged and the hydrogens are slightly positively charged. The deltas here, the small Greek deltas, indicate a partial charge as opposed to a full charge that you'd get. You'd get a full charge if the electron were to be completely captured by one of the partners. Of you'd then get a sodium ion with a positive charge and a chloride ion with a net full negative charge. So water is a polar molecule, one with a charge separation. And this property has profound consequences for biological molecules. As a result of this polarity, each water molecule can be attracted to another water molecule, 
depending on the orientation. This attraction is very sensitive to orientation, being sharply maximal when the OHO atoms from two different molecules are lined up in a straight line. These connections between two molecules are called hydrogen bonds. Their strength is about three kilocalories per mole. Thus, they're weak bonds compared to the strong covalent bonds of about 100 kilocalories per mole. To chemically break covalent bonds by thermal motion induced by heat, you would typically need hundreds of degrees. For example, breaking oxygen-oxygen bonds when burning coal. In contrast, hydrogen bonds are readily disrupted at temperatures between freezing and boiling, 0 degrees and 100 degrees centigrade. In fact, freezing and boiling of water is a reflection of the hydrogen bonding. It's a gas when there's so much thermal motion that no hydrogen bonding is possible. It's a liquid when the hydrogen bonds are constantly forming, breaking, and reforming. And it's a solid when the hydrogen bonds are locked in in a stable crystal, crystal structure, which is ice. Are there hydrogen bonds in compounds other than water? Sure. Consider ethanol, alcohol, which has an hydroxyl group, OH. You should consult your functional groups handout as we start to discuss these different groups. We'll be discussing almost all the functional groups on the functional group handout at one time or another as we go through the next few weeks. Comparing CH3, CH2OH, that is alcohol or ethanol, versus ethane, CH3, CH3, the latter does not have a polar hydroxyl group. The hydroxyl group is polar for the same reason as in water. So it can hydrogen bond to water when it is in an aqueous solution, as most biological molecules are. It's for this reason that most compounds with polar groups are very soluble in water. That is, they're constantly forming these weak bonds to the water molecules. Please note that carbon always forms four hydrogen bonds, four bonds, I'm sorry. It always forms four bonds. So it's, um, that'll help you in drawing these molecules. All the hydrogen bonds are not limited to oxygen in OH groups. Nitrogen is also more electronegative than hydrogen as in an amide, which is CONH2, and oxygen's more electronegative than carbon, as in the carbonyl group in that same amide. The CO group is the carbonyl group. If you look at this diagram of hydrogen bonds, note that R is a shorthand for any general organic group, one that's not necessarily relevant for the discussion at hand. How about hydrogen bonds between organic molecules? Sure, if they can find each other. For example, ethanol and acetamide with that amide group. And the orientation is import important here as it is with water. If the amide in the diagram here were acetamide, the R would be CH3. In aqueous solutions, such interactions will always be competing with water molecules which are usually more abundant. 
Having introduced the subject of weak bonds, I want to now complete the discussion of bonds by introducing all the bonds that play important roles in the behavior of biological molecules. These are five, as indicated in the table below. First, the covalent bonds that we've already mentioned. The electrons are shared. It's a strong bond, bond energy of about 100 kilocalories per mole. That is the energy needed to pull the two bonding atoms apart. Hydrogen bonds, examples are water-water. The amount of energy needed to pull them apart, only two or three kilocalories per mole. Organic molecules can form hydrogen bonds with water. Organic molecules can form hydrogen bonds with other organic molecules. And the orientation is very important uh, across the hydrogen that's in the middle of these hydrogen bonds. You need linearity. Now let's introduce a third type of bond, the ionic bond. Here we have a full charge transfer, for instance, in sodium chloride. This bond's very strong in the dry crystal. Think about it. You need a hammer to break a crystal into powdered salt. But ionic bonds are weak in water. The ions come apart as soon as you drop a crystal of salt into water. Why? Water can hydrogen bond to the charged ions, Na plus and Cl minus. This process is called salvation. So is this bond between water and the ion a hydrogen bond or an ionic bond? Well, sort of half and half. Maybe five kilocalories per mole. Organic molecules can form ions too, acids and bases. Let's consider acids. These are molecules that are able to lose a proton. Proton is a hydrogen ion. They're able to lose a proton easily such as uh, a carboxyl group, otherwise known as a carboxylic acid. RCOOH goes to RCOO minus plus H plus. Notice the ionic character of the, uh, of the acid after it's lost its hydrogen. Now RCOO minus with a net charge of minus one. Bases are molecules that are able to take up a proton easily. Protons being always around to some extent in water at about 10 to the minus 7th molar at neutral pH of pH 7. An example of a base, an organic base of biological importance is an amine here. RNH2 plus H plus becomes RNH3 plus an ionized form of the amine. Carboxylic acid will be the only organic acid, and amines will be the only organic base we'll discuss this semester. Acidity and basicity are measured by pH, which is the negative logarithm of the hydrogen ion concentration. You can review that in a chemistry book or uh, in your intro in Purvis, the Purvis text. Under the right conditions, ionic bonds can form between two organic ions with a bond strength of about five kilocalories per mole, as we saw in NaCl. In water, this is. So we could have RCO minus 
with its negative charge attracting the positive amine ion R in H3+. Where are we going with all this chemistry and these weak bonds? We started describing the molecules of E. coli with the idea that we have to know what we have in order to know what we have to make to replicate an E. coli cell. The weak bonds I'm cataloging for you now show how these molecules can interact. But as we proceed to consider larger and larger molecules, they'll help us to understand the structure of the individual large molecules, such as proteins and DNA. So this is more than just a listing. The weak bonds will be very important, as we'll see in the next few lectures. Let's go on with our fourth bond, van der Waals bonds. These can exist between any two molecules. They are only affected at very close range, for example, a tenth of a nanometer or an angstrom. At the root of van der Waals bonds are, is the fluctuating induced dipole. Their strength is only about one kilocalorie per mole. These are the weakest of the bonds we'll discuss, about a kilocalorie per mole, but they're able to form between any two molecules. Van der Waals interactions form between fluctuating induced dipoles. What does that mean? Take, for example, two methyl groups where the carbon and hydrogen have about the same electronegativity, so there's no intrinsic charge separation. A momentary negative charge can develop in the electron distribution around one of these atoms. And this charge will induce the opposite charge in a nearby atom's electric cloud. Thus, there'll be an electrical attraction between these two basically neutral atoms. These bonds are only effective at extremely short range, almost touching. Indeed, the size of an atom in space is often estimated by its, quote, van der Waals radius, the closest approach before repulsion between the nuclei sets in. The last kind of bond we'll talk about is not actually a bond, but an interaction that's of considerable importance nonetheless. Hydrophobic interactions. These are caused by the effects of water on the association of other molecules. Nonpolar or apolar molecules are unable to form hydrogen bonds with water. For example, octane, CH3, CH2, 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 CH3. That's one of the active molecules in gasoline. Water molecules surrounding an apolar molecule take on a relatively ordered structure compared to the constantly switching hydrogen bonding patterns made with other water molecules. So if we consider two water molecules in this diagram separated, two octane molecules separated, they would be surrounded by, say, a cage of water molecules that are relatively ordered relative to what? Relative to the molecules that are not there, that are just free, the water molecules that are free in solution. Systems will change so as to maximize entropy, which is a measure of disorder. If we consider the two octane molecules aggregated such that they expel water molecules from their interface because they're touching, these freed up water molecules are now free to be join their 
more disordered neighbors in the general water pool. So that with the aggregated two octane molecules, we see there's less ordered water than when the two octane molecules were separated over on the left. Even though the octane molecules are more ordered when they're aggregated, the increase in disorder of the water molecules that became freed from the cage structure is so great that the entropy of the system is greater with the octane molecules coalesced rather than apart. This increase in entropy, or disorder, provides a hydrophobic force equivalent to about two to three kilocalories per mole, per mole of octane in this case. The actual bonds between the octane molecules in the coalesced glob and water are just the van der Waals bonds. The state of affairs is not intuitively obvious. But the bottom line is that apolar groups will tend to associate with other apolar groups in an aqueous solution. You can see your Purvis text for uh, better pictures of this uh, idea. Now this finishes our introduction to the chemical bonds that will be important in our consideration of biological molecules. So let's get back to the chemical makeup of the E. coli cell. Water was molecule number one. We have about 5,000 more different types to consider. Before proceeding to number two, let's place all molecules into two classes. One, small, and two, large. Small, what's small? Let's say less than 500 Daltons, or molecular weight units, corresponding to about 50 atoms. Large, let's say greater than 5,000 Daltons, or greater than about 500 atoms. These size distinctions are not sharp boundaries, just a, a rough gauge. The large molecules are usually called macromolecules. The small molecules are just called small molecules. Small, for example, a molecule like propylene, a synthetic organic molecule, CH3, CH, double bond, CH2. What's a large version of this small molecule? Well, you consider the picture on the left, we could make, make a big sheet, or you can imagine a three-dimensional ball made up of small propylene molecules. But it's not the picture like this. Rather, polypropylene, which is a familiar plastic, is a linear polymer of propylene, where each one propylene molecule attached to the next, 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 in a line. Virtually all the biological macromolecules are built this same way. They're linear polymers of small molecules. This simplifies matters greatly. More on nomenclature. Monomers would go to dimers, two small molecules linked together covalently. And if we add a third, that's trimers, then tetramers, etc. Once you get up beyond some ill-defined small number, like maybe seven or eight, oligomers, which is a moderate number of repeating units. And finally, one gets to polymers with lots of repeating units. The monomers could be all the same, as in certain polysaccharides like cellulose, where glucose is the monomer. Or they could be different, the extreme example being proteins, where there's a mixture of 20 different monomers present.
While this greatly simplifies our consideration of these large molecules, there's plenty of complexity left. Many of the important small molecules in the cell are these monomers, the basic building blocks of the biological polymers. The polymers, or macromolecules, comprise four classes, polysaccharides, lipids, nucleic acids, and proteins. The total number of these monomers is about 40, which is pretty simple. Now there are about a dozen or so other small molecules that serve other functions. They're not monomers that will end up in polymers. These are cofactors that are important in the catalysis of chemical reactions in the cell. So this brings us to about 50 different small molecules so far. Then, necessary but less generally important, are the so-called intermediates. All the carbon in an E. coli cell <coughs> can flow from glucose via biochemical pathways. If you look at your flow handout, you see this for an overview. This is what glucose looks like. Six carbons with a bunch of hydroxyls and one C double bondo at the top here. It's one way to look at it. Here's what one of the monomers of a protein looks like. Three carbons, a nitrogen. Look, there's a carboxylic acid over on the right, and amine over on the left. These molecules are quite different. In the cell, a molecule of glucose is converted in a series of chemical transformations into a product, in this case the amino acid alanine, which is a monomer for building proteins. Intermediate types of molecules are created along the way on this pathway, which is called a metabolic pathway. So we can say in general that glucose, which is all we're giving our E. coli to grow, goes to compound A, then that gets transformed to compound B, and so forth to C, D, E. Finally, we get a monomer, which is used to make one of these four classes of polymers, and the monomers polymerize into a polymer. So here, A, B, C, D, and E are the intermediates. These pathways are various lengths. If we take 10 as a generous estimate of the intermediate steps in an average pathway, then we get another 450, let's say, nine intermediates and 50 pathways to our, 50 monomer, to our 40 monomers and 10 cofactors, to our 50 small molecules. Nine intermediates, that's 450 intermediates. 450 more different small molecules to add to our total in these E. coli cells. We're totaling up all the different small molecules in the E. coli cell. So our final number of small molecules is about 500. Not too great a number to master. Most of these are known. We'll get to know the majority of the end products, the monomers, as well as a few of the intermediates. We'll continue our discussion of the molecules of E. coli now by focusing on the polymers. And the monomers will be considered in the context of the macromolecules of which they are part. A simple overview of the kinds of molecules in the cell, then, is shown in the diagram below. And we'll continue our discussion of macromolecules in the next lecture.